2: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 146th edition of the program. Today is June 7th, and this episode of the podcast is brought to you by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors. And this week, that includes Christian LaSalle, Daphne, Darren Bassel, Eileen Bavaqui, From Out of Nowhere, Ion Tanasi, Jacob Nettemeyer, Jeff Zatcham, Joe Six, Kyle Lovell, Leigh Lennox, Mike, Morgan Hunter, Rick Lenert, Stephen Moore, The Crazy Vincent, Tiffany Namwong, and Xavier Zervisco. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, Bernie Sanders appeared on Bill Maher's program and he gave Democrats the antidote to Trumpism. I'll talk about his appearance. Also, Alex Jones ran into Bernie Sanders at LAX and decided to follow him around and yell at him like the lunatic that he is. Trump breaks his own record when it comes to him contradicting himself, and he did so this time within minutes, all in one session with the press. We'll talk about the consequences of the so-called religious liberty executive order Trump signed into law last year, and on the subject of Trump, he essentially proclaimed that he's above the law and that the Constitution doesn't really apply to him. The Supreme Court sided with a bigoted baker over a gay couple in a recent cake case. I'll talk about Candace Owens' appearance on Joe Rogan's podcast. And Jon Stewart explains why liberals need to stop apologizing to conservatives because their fake outrage over Samantha Bee is nothing more than a game to them that they play all the time, mind you. And one centrist Democrat is now getting support from the Koch brothers' most prominent group. A Palestinian medic was shot dead at the border of Gaza by Israel's military. California's net neutrality bill clears the Senate. I'll give you an update on the petition we launched last week that calls on DNC Chairman Tom Perez to resign. And finally, we'll chat with Levi Tilleman, who's a congressional candidate running in Colorado, and the Democratic Party establishment tried to bully him out of the race. But first, we'll kick off the show with a story about how Bernie Sanders is still standing up for average Americans and slowly but surely changing America. That's what we got on today's agenda. Enjoy the show. I wanted to take a moment to check in on our 2020 presidential hopefuls, given that we're now probably less than a year out from most of them launching their presidential campaigns. Looks like Kamala Harris is hanging out with Israel's war criminal prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and would you look at that, so is Kirsten Gillibrand and Cory Booker. And Cory Booker is also hanging out with millionaire Democratic Party donor, Stephen Klubeck, who threatened to cut off funding for the Democratic Party if they do, in fact, move left. Now, let's check in on Bernie Sanders. Oh, would you look at that? He's still representing the people. So last week, he teamed up with labor groups and Disney workers to call on Disney to stop being so greedy, to actually pay their workers a living wage and allow them to unionize.
3: And shaming the Disney Corporation. Shaming them. Because I want to hear the moral defense. We're in a church now. I want to hear the moral defense of a company that makes nine billion in profits, four hundred million for their CEOs, and has a thirty year worker going hungry. Tell me how that is wrong. Like.
2: Now, besides actually showing up and standing in solidarity with Disney workers, he posted a video on Twitter showing just how greedy Disney really is. And this was pretty disturbing because I didn't know all of this was going on.
4: Disney, the happiest place on earth. But is it really? Bob Iger certainly would argue so. He's the company's co-chairman and CEO, raking in over $36 million last year alone. He also received $100 million in stock when his company bought Fox. And he can make another $423 million within just four years if he delays his retirement. Unfortunately, that seems to be the extent of Disney's magic. According to a recent survey, nearly 73% of Disney employees are not making enough money for their most basic needs. Roughly one out of ten Disneyland workers reported being homeless in the past two years, meaning they didn't have a place of their own to sleep while 56% reported concerns of being evicted from their current residence, 68% of workers surveyed are food insecure, meaning they lack sufficient access to safe and nutritious food. But hey, after the Trump administration's tax cuts were approved, Disney promised to give its workers a $1,000 bonus. Only now they're refusing to pay it to over 37,000 theme park employees, unless they agree to a contract forcing them to work for starvation wages. Disney's workers' average pay is just $10.71 an hour.
5: So right now I'm making $10 an hour, and that is not nearly enough to support myself fully. I have rent and credit card bills and car bills to pay, and I'm not making nearly enough right now, just like every other cast
6: member here.
4: Now they want them to sign a contract increasing their pay by just 50 cents an hour in order to reap the so-called benefits of the Trump tax cut. So, Get a massive tax break, give your CEO and shareholders an obscene amount of money, and pay your workers' starvation wages. Disney officials have repeatedly hakuna matata their way out of scrutiny, denying that they underpay their workers and claiming that everything's just fine. However, there's been evidence time and time again that the company really doesn't care to improve their employees' benefits. In 2016, they laid off 250 IT workers who had been vital in the creation and implementation of Disney's Orlando landmark. That wasn't all. Employees were forced to train their replacements, immigrant workers brought into the U.S. employed at a lower cost, or face losing an offered bonus.
3: The theme park is now expected to change its motto from the happiest place on earth to simply place on earth. Business drives our economy. We create jobs, we give back to communities, we create great experiences for people.
4: Sure, that's what businesses should be doing. Unfortunately, we're seeing corporate CEOs like Bob Iger and others hoard thousands of millions of dollars every year while their workers get left with a short end of the stick.
2: Now, fighting for Disney workers wasn't the only thing that Bernie Sanders was doing because actually later in that same day, he teamed up with Sean King to talk about mass incarceration and why we need to reform America's broken criminal justice system. All over this
3: country! We are beginning, just beginning, to see the American people stand up and make it clear that it makes no sense at all that we have two million people in jail today, more than communist China. That it makes no sense at all that those numbers are disproportionately African-American, Latino, and Native American. And that it makes no sense that in a nation with so many pressing needs that we spend 80 billion dollars a year locking up fellow Americans. And what the American people from coast to coast are now saying It is time for real reform of this disastrous system. As all of you know, the Pledge of Allegiance talks about liberty and justice for all. Liberty and justice for all, which are very fine words. But what we are saying today is we want more than words. We want liberty and justice to be what this country is about. I think all of you know that today we don't have liberty and justice for all. We have one system of justice for the crooks on Wall Street whose greed and illegal behavior almost destroyed our entire economy and resulted in millions of people losing their jobs and their homes and their life savings. And somebody correct me here, but I don't recall that one of those crooks went to jail. But then we have a different system of justice for a kid who smokes marijuana or another kid who steals a pair of sneakers. We have one system of justice if you are white and another system of justice if you are black or brown or Native American.
2: Now, if you watched the live stream of the event, um, the reaction that he got was, was great. The comments, a lot of them were just, you know, praising Bernie and saying number 46 in reference to him being elected after Trump. Um, I think he's really, he's not just fighting for the people. Slowly but surely, he is transforming American society. He's getting us to think differently about politics. He's getting people to stop scapegoating immigrants for their economic woes or the poor for getting welfare. He's getting people to think about the system itself and how the economy is rigged against them because we have a system we have an economy that incentivizes mass greed this is what capitalism does it exploits workers at the behest of the elite class and he's getting us to think about it in these terms it's simple so bernie sanders in in touring the country and fighting for normal americans he's showing that he is the true progressive ahead of the 2020 Presidential election. Individuals like Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand and Cory Booker, they may talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk like Bernie Sanders. He's setting the bar and they're forced to follow Bernie Sanders. He says we should have Medicare for all. They say we should have Medicare for all. And that's great. That's a step in the right direction. But understand if you want the true progressive, that individual is only Bernie Sanders. You will get no one as authentic and genuine as him who cares about the American people. So I was really impressed that Bernie Sanders, at the age of 152, has this much, much energy to do all of this in one day, in one weekend. He went on Bill Maher's show the day before, too. I don't know how he does it. And also, um, he got yelled at by Alex Jones at LAX. So um, I don't know how how he has the energy to do this. I really don't. I hope I'm half as energetic as Bernie Sanders when I'm his age. But um, this is someone who, he puts his passion and policy priorities above his own well-being. And that is commendable. That's someone who I can't wait to support in 2020. So, after Bill Maher's show has continued to decay over the years and he increasingly becomes more and more conservative and panders to right wingers, he finally did something that appeased progressives. Or rather, I should say, he had an episode that aired that didn't piss off all progressives. And he did this by actually bringing on a progressive Bernie Sanders. And it was really encouraging to see Bill Maher's audience cheer on Bernie Sanders so loudly. And I was happy to hear Bill Maher himself say he'd support Bernie Sanders if he did, in fact, decide to run in 2020. So it was actually, I think, a pretty solid show for the first time in a long time. I can't remember the last time I watched Bill Maher um, and didn't just hate his face while watching it, but this time it was it was pretty good. So Bernie Sanders was um, talking to Bill Maher about what Democrats specifically can do to defeat Trumpism.
3: It is not good enough to simply attack Trump every single day. What we need to do is bring forth an agenda that working people all over this country are going to respond to. And let me be very clear, and I've said it before, in 2016, it's not that Trump won, it's that Democrats lost. And for too long, the Democratic Party... The Democratic Party has been dominated by wealthy campaign contributors. They gotta open the door to people who work with their hands, people who take showers at the end of the day, not at the beginning of the day. (laughs) Open the door to young people. And we have a generation out there of some of the brightest, most decent young people in the history of this country. Beautiful young people. And what we have to do, Bill, let's not forget this. Four years ago in 2014, we had the lowest voter turnout for a midterm election since World War II 37% of the people voted. If we increase that voter turnout by 50%, Democrats win the House, win the Senate. And that's what we have to
7: do. Okay, so. Right. So you mentioned the Democrats lost last time. Um... But your agenda won. You may not have won the nomination, right? But you talk about an agenda. They're all behind that now. I mean, Medicare for all. Yep. You know, all the people who are running for president. We kind of know who they are. uh, And uh, income inequality. All those issues.
2: So. Bernie's overall point is 100% true. You can't just be anti-Trump. You've got to be unapologetically progressive and put forward a platform that will actually excite your base and thus increase voter turnout. And what I like is that an establishment figurehead like Bill Maher actually acknowledged that Bernie Sanders is the one setting the bar for 2020. Bernie is the one that essentially forced other Democrats like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, all to acquiesce behind Bernie Sanders' agenda. And for someone like Bill Maher to admit that, I do think it's a really big deal because he's giving Bernie Sanders credit where other establishment figures and establishment loyalists like Bill Maher generally don't do that. So it's important that Bill Maher said this and acknowledged the truth about how Bernie Sanders is still influencing other presidential contenders and individuals within the Democratic Party because they need to hear this and it coming from Bill Maher I think is really important but Bill Maher did push back against Bernie and I think that him pressing Bernie was justified because he asked Bernie how you take basically an agenda and turn that into effective messaging to compete with Republicans who generally are really good at getting the message out there and galvanizing their own base and I think Bernie's answer again was pretty impressive
7: an agenda is not a message they are different Trump is better at messaging. His voters don't seem to care about an agenda or anything except build a wall, lock her up. What's the Democrats' message? If you had to boil it down to something that would fit on a hat, which is about all people can take in at this point. What is the Democratic message? The Democratic
3: message is that we need a government that represents working families, not billionaires. (laughs) An agenda. An agenda that says that health care is a right, not a privilege. An agenda that speaks to the young people and says that we should make public colleges and universities
7: tuition-free and lower student debt. That's an agenda that wins. But, but, okay, but Trump has shown that the American people, they elected him. I, I, I understand he didn't win the popular vote, but he got a lot of votes. And so they, and, and he's popularity rating keeps going up, not right, down. Uh, yeah. It's it's almost in the range of like a normal president, which is really <laughs> scary because he certainly is not that. So, they obviously don't care about so many things they used to care about like decorum or policy or democracy or freedom of the press. So, in this new arena, and he's a he is brilliant at controlling the debate and controlling airtime. What does a Democrat have to do to compete on this new stage? It is a
3: new stage. That's a fair point, and the airtime issue is very difficult. You know, people say, well,
7: why aren't the Democrats talking about issues? Well, you know
3: what? In many cases, Democrats are, but were overwhelmed with Trump's tweets and the absurdity of the day. So I think what Democrats have got to do, basically, is go into Trump country and talk to people who are now living in desperation. You know, the truth of the matter is, one of the reasons, in my view, that Trump won is that he sensed that there were millions of people in this country who were ignored by the political establishment. They ignored by the elite. They're working longer hours for lower wages. They're scared to death about the future facing their children. And he said, and he lied, I hear you. Our job is not to lie to have the guts to deal with the serious issues that they face,
2: and to take on the people who have power in this country. So I think that Bill Maher is both right and wrong here. He's right in that Republicans, I mean, nobody can deny the fact that they are very effective at messaging. If they say something, they repeat it over and over and over, and suddenly people just regurgitate it as fact. So Republicans are good at messaging, but Bill Maher is wrong in saying that the Democratic Party's base doesn't care about policies. They do care about policies. The problem is that the Democratic Party doesn't ever talk about policies. They simply regurgitate the same platitudes over and over again. And when they talk about things, it's, it's never about policy substance. So, for example, Tom Perez, the DNC chairman, one of the leaders of the Democratic Party, when he's talking about healthcare, he likes to say that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. And now a lot of Democrats are saying this, but when you ask them if they support laws like Medicare for All that wouldn't make healthcare an actual right and not a privilege, well, they say no. They do this tap dance around the question. So they like to espouse platitudes and not say anything meaningful, but if you actually give the base real concrete policies they'll come out and support you and the reason why trump had the upper hand in 2016 also was because the media gave him two billion dollars in free coverage regardless if that coverage was negative or not the mere fact that they were covering him that much legitimized his campaign and made him seem like a credible candidate and it also helped to get his message out there more but bernie's solution here is to talk to people subvert the media altogether. And it's a way to bypass their bias and reach voters in a more direct manner. And really, this is what the grassroots is all about. It lets voters know you care enough to actually go to them and talk with them. And clearly, what Bernie Sanders is doing is working. He's going to Trump country. He's going to the areas of the country where voters felt like they were forgotten about, not just by Republicans, but by the Democratic Party as well. And he's letting them know that he cares about them and that their policy preferences are important they matter because what they want by and large is what all americans want and i mean what he's doing is working because he's the most popular politician in the country by a mile so i really thought that this was a great interview by bill maher it was the first time again that i watched bill maher where i didn't come away completely pissed with my day ruined um wanted to rent uh kudos to bill maher i mean this is a step in the right direction one thing that i will say to bill maher is that if you truly do care about bernie Sanders and support his campaign don't do what you did in 2016 in 2020 because he basically talked about bernie sanders as if he had no chance of winning i remember during a particular overtime segment somebody asked you know if bernie sanders could win iowa and new hampshire does he have a chance and he said no he still doesn't have a chance So, I mean, the way that Bill Maher described Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign was as if it was meaningless and you should have just lined up behind Hillary Clinton, and he misread the political climate at that time, and now he's realizing that he was wrong. But Bill, you're still wrong about a lot of things, and you need to actually talk to average Americans, not just rich elites that you bring on your program. Actually talk to people and see what they're thinking with regard to politics
8: like i putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin frogs gay
2: conspiracy theorist and performance artist alex jones was recently at lax and he ran into vermont senator bernie sanders now he then proceeded to film himself yelling at bernie sanders like a crazy person And he posted that video to the internet, and in a tweet linking to that video, he states, The king of communism, Bernie Sanders, literally ran from us. Now, when you watch the video, you'll see that Bernie Sanders didn't literally run away from Alex Jones. He just did what a reasonable person would do in that situation when a deranged lunatic with a camera comes up to them and (laughs) yells at them. He just tried to ignore Alex Jones, and I think Bernie Sanders did an effective job at doing that. So I'm going to show you the video, but first, I need you to know what type of person we're dealing with here. Because when Alex Jones isn't selling his viewers' lead-tainted products, he's peddling nonsensical conspiracy theories like Pizzagate, or that Sandy Hook was a hoax, or he'll bring on guests that will say shit like this.
4: And uh, this may strike your listeners as way out, but we actually believe that there is a college Colony on Mars that is populated by children who were kidnapped and sent into space on a 20-year ride uh, so that once they get to Mars they have no alternative but to be slaves on the Mars colony."
6: <laughs>
2: <laughs> now a personal favorite of mine is his theory about human fish people and yes you heard me correctly I said human fish people. I was told by a genetic engineer about a project they were on in England
8: once and I never told the story on air because it's so fantastical. Oh God. They had in tanks people with gills, they were little babies and they were in there just gulping, clawing at the sides. You see a turtle at the zoo and it wants out and you feel for it. They got humanoids crossed with fish and stuff. I mean,
2: we are screwed people. I mean, do you understand that?
6: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, That's the level of stupidity that we're dealing with here. Now I'm gonna play you the clip of him harassing Bernie Sanders at LAX, and as you watch this, try to keep track of all the accusations he lobs at Bernie Sanders in the process. Well they didn't know Bernie Sanders. Dude,
9: no, come on, not
8: right now. No, Sanders Why'd you say white people didn't know what it was like before? Let me guess—you guys aren't flying first class, are you? Why is he running? Anyways, you guys flying first class—you shouldn't be.
6: I
9: got a coach in ticket in my
8: pocket. They don't do that in Venezuela, Bernie. Why are you running, bro? There we go. Carl Rove didn't run like this. He always mm-hmm. talked to me. I'll talk to you. You want to have a conversation? Well, he we said, "Why people don't know what it's like to be poor." This is why people—they're poor. Why? Kind of because you're following,
3: What? He said, "Why people don't know what it's like to be poor." I thought it was a really racist thing to say. When you're white, you don't know what it's like to be living in a ghetto. You don't know what it's like to be poor. You don't know what it's like to be hassled when you walk down the street or you get dragged out of a car. Hmm?
8: You guys are so afraid of stuff. Wow! Bernie Sanders runs from all chains. There you go. I already got it now. Don't worry. Don't Get worry. my beautiful face on camera. Don't worry. We'll destroy America. We'll turn it into Venezuela. Don't worry. Andrew's over here. <laughs> look, look, right there. Bernie, why'd you say white people don't, don't know what's like before? Me, don't, don't, touch oh. don't touch me. Alex, don't touch me. Don't touch me, Alex. You guys have fun. Gotta be around the general public, huh? It's kind of a bad thing. You're on the proletariat like that, when you're a ruling class commie, huh? The truth is, the left is the most vicious, evil ideology the planet's ever seen. It's a historical fact. But they always lecture us how we're violent, we're bad. They're the ones that want to abort all the babies. They're the ones that wanted to block Trump being able to have all the experimental uh, cures and treatments given to people that were terminal. They're the people that love the culture of death. Just like Bernie supported Black Lives Matter, just like he wouldn't decry the cop killers when they killed cops. That's the type of monster, cold-blooded person that Sanders is. He wants to overthrow this country via conquest. Bernie Sanders is a monster. Mr. Sanders, why do you think socialism works better than capitalism? And why do you live in a capitalist country? I don't know why you're running from me. Where are you flying today? You gonna apologize to the Sandy Hook families, Alex? Well, that's the media misrepresents that. That's that. You, you, you apologize for all the wars you guys launched, the Democrats. All the millions you killed.
2: Do you enjoy living in your million-dollar vacation houses, Bernie, or do you want to give those to the? Owner? Yeah, your
8: hundred-thousand-dollar Audis. Move to Venezuela, Bernie. You'll like it. People like you there. So over and over again, they want to change the subject from communism and socialism destroying hundreds of countries and killing over 200 million people. They want to change the subject to myself and others asking questions about big public events that are used to blame the Second Amendment. This is incredible. But as long as they can't guilt you into their mind control, they fail. They are sociopaths and psychopaths leftist and globalist are there to manipulate those of us that have feelings so again ladies and gentlemen bernie sanders checked off the bucket list running like a cowardly rat into a sewer away from serious questions
2: wow so i really don't know where to begin and in fact the clip itself was a lot longer than that i had to cut it down for time so i'll link to the full clip in the description box but i mean he basically threw whatever he could at Bernie Sanders, at the wall, in hopes that it would stick. And what I love is that Bernie Sanders' aide asked if he was going to apologize to the families of Sandy Hook. And what was Alex Jones' response? Oh, that's the media trying to misrepresent me. Oh, okay, so you care about the media misrepresenting you as you go on to not just misrepresent, but brazenly lie about Bernie Sanders and his record. Interesting how that works. So when it's a misrepresentation against Alex Jones... That's, uh, that's unethical, it's immoral, but when it's against Bernie Sanders, someone he doesn't like, because he doesn't know what socialism or communism is, well, that's acceptable. And it wasn't a misrepresentation by the media. He literally called the children of Sandy Hook crisis actors. So he's a liar. But let's get to what he says about Bernie Sanders. You gonna apologize for all the wars you guys launch, the Democrats? Alex, you're a Republican. There's never been a war the Republican Party didn't like. Prior to Trump, the last administration got us involved with Iraq and Afghanistan, and we're still there. So it's not that Democrats are anti-war, it's that they always go along with wars that Republicans try to start. You have a president who you support, mind you, that has John Bolton as his national security advisor and Mike Pompeo as his secretary of state. The president who you support is currently bombing eight different countries right now. And he doesn't even realize the irony in saying this to Bernie Sanders because he is one of the few politicians in this country that has remained consistently anti-war. So if you truly care about anti-war, you need to stop supporting Republicans immediately because they are the pro-war party. They are the party of death and destruction. But let's go to what else he says about Bernie Sanders. He stated that that Bernie Sanders wants to destroy America and turn it into Venezuela. No, he wants to fix America and turn it into Scandinavia. Uh, he accused Bernie Sanders of being racist against whites. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Um, he says the left is the most vicious, evil ideology the planet's ever seen. It's a historical fact. Now, I'd ask you for a citation on that, Alex, but I don't think you can really measure that in a manner that's not subjective, so he just said a platitude that really is meaningless. He accused Bernie Sanders and the left of wanting to, quote, abort all the babies. You guessed it. That's exactly what the left wants to do, Alex. We want to abort all the babies. He says Bernie Sanders and the left support a culture of death, which is why he supported Black Lives Matter, which, I mean, Alex maybe doesn't realize this, but Black Lives Matter is a movement against death. They want the police to stop targeting people of color in this country. And he also states that Bernie Sanders wouldn't decry cop killers when they killed cops, but Bernie actually did. He called the Dallas attack on police officers horrifying and despicable. He called Bernie Sanders a monster and said he wants to overthrow this country via conquest. But if that were true, why would Bernie Sanders currently be gearing up to run for president? Wouldn't he be building a militia to overthrow Donald Trump? He's not doing that. So, I mean... Alex Jones is saying all these things that are not just nonsensical, but they mean nothing. They have absolutely no substance whatsoever. He probably ran into Bernie Sanders, was unprepared, but knew that he had to target Bernie, so he decided to just say, whatever, you're a monster, you're a socialist, you're a commie. I mean, this this is a deranged lunatic. And he also states that uh, Bernie Sanders is a ruling class commie, this is what he called Bernie, who didn't want to be around a proletariat like Alex Jones. But that's funny, Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders is the ruling class commie, and Alex Jones is supposedly the proletariat. Alex Jones is portraying himself as the peasant here, but when you look at net worth, Bernie Sanders is worth around 800000 whereas Alex Jones is worth $10 million. But please, Alex, continue to pretend as though you're one of the peasants like us. Now, I also love how he um, clearly, in this clip, doesn't know what the fuck socialism or communism is, and what Bernie Sanders should have done is ask uh, Alex Jones, Hey, Alex, why don't you define socialism and communism? That would have been funny to watch because, you know, he would have no idea because he throws those terms around so much, but he he clearly doesn't know what they are. Bernie Sanders is not a socialist or a communist. Bernie Sanders is a social democrat, which is one of the most common political ideologies worldwide. Most parties, uh, or most, most countries rather, have political parties that are social democratic parties. So to call Bernie Sanders... A socialist and equate his ideology which is very moderate with communism it's absolutely insane and it shows that alex jones is not just crazy but he's also very ignorant about political terms that he should know since he is a political commentator now i do want to get to his criticism of bernie sanders quote where bernie sanders said white people don't know what it's like to be poor so obviously bernie sanders knows That white people are aware of what it's like to be poor. But if you go back to the context of the debate, Bernie Sanders was asked about racial blind spots he has, and he clearly misspoke. In fact, Bernie Sanders tried to clarify his remarks afterwards and said, quote, What I meant by that is I think that many white people are not aware of the kinds of pressures and the kind of police oppression that sometimes takes place within the African American community. So if you isolate that comment from Bernie Sanders and take it at face value, of course it's not true. But the fact is that Bernie Sanders obviously misspoke because he knows that white people are poor too. Bernie Sanders talks about poverty more so than any other politician in the country. But what Bernie Sanders was trying to do is disaggregate economic issues from issues related to race and justice in the United States. But that's a little bit too nuanced for someone like Alex Jones, who is, again, just a lunatic. So overall, what Alex Jones tried to do was... Frame Bernie as a coward in the situation because Bernie Sanders quote ran away from Alex Jones, but the truth is that Bernie Sanders just didn't want to deal with Alex Jones's bullshit now, Alex, put yourself in Bernie Sanders position. How would you respond if someone who's clearly unstable came up to you and wouldn't leave you alone. They wouldn't go away when you clearly are giving them social cues that you don't want to be associated with them. Well, actually, we know exactly how Alex Jones would react in that situation because one of his loony fans actually approached him during a live stream. And can you guess what Alex Jones did? He ran away from his own fan in the same way that Bernie Sanders, quote, ran away from him.
0: Oh my- that's a, a mock of complacency where you...
8: Hey, how you doing, sir? Good, how are you? Good, man. Big listener. God bless you. By the way, I just want to let you know, uh, I own InfoWarsMusic.com. Facebook. That's awesome. Can you see us online? Just come in there.
6: I saw you on Facebook a lot. I'm the Spider-Man guy on 6th Street. Oh, great job, brother. Have you heard about me? I have. OK, I went into the, uh, I went into the, um, you know, with civil Edmonds, like, protesting the Muslim thing, taxpayer funding of the schools.
2: And I went there with my costume and my Trump shirt and the Capitol. And it's on YouTube. So. I saw
8: it, it's viral. I'm going to scram, but I'm going to get your drink. Boom. Thank I got to go right now.
6: Hey, hey, I want to set up infowarsmusic.com. That's why I moved to Austin, Texas. Can you help me do it?
8: Rob D. R. to OBD. I've been O-B-D. Talking at InfoWars.com.
6: Say it again.
8: ROBD at InfoWars.com. I ran to some lady. She's like, I met your InfoWars guy. ROBD at InfoWars.com. Double H. We got to split this. Thank you. If the word's out, more people are telling want more
2: funding for your show? Google can't censor a song that sells a million copies. And I got 50 artists that
6: are ready to sell their songs on InfoWarsMusic.com to help fund your show. I'm ready, brother.
2: You ready? Yeah. R.O.
8: contact Rob D. R. D. At InfoWars.com. Rob R.D. And, and Rob R.D. at
2: InfoWars.com. Yep. Let's go, guys. I love me. Can I take a picture of
8: yourself? Let's do it. Let's do hey, it. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Yes. Yes. You a huge fan. You have no idea. No, God bless you. Anymore. No, no. You're awesome. My security guys, we trust you. Like, get out of there! Get out of there! It's like,
6: nink, 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 by, nink, by, like by
2: the way, you know about the Rh. You know about the Rh negative blood types, right? I'm the king of all the Rh negative blood types on planet Earth. i I love it.
8: <laughs> all right, God bless you. One more, one more. I got it. Come on. <laughs> God bless you, brother.
2: Yes, sir. Rob. So Rob, Rob D. Rob D. See you later. Robert. Yep. <laughs> Gay. so uh what happened alex <laughs> why'd you run away from your fan i mean that's your own fan it's almost as if when a belligerent bumbling incoherent buffoon approaches you the best thing to do is ignore them and try to flee the situation that's what you did so what you did to your own fan is what bernie sanders did to you because clearly You're not a stable, well-adjusted adult human being. You're a lunatic, you're a conspiracy theorist, and nobody who actually is important in this country takes what you have to say seriously. I just wanna finish by saying
1: your reputation's amazing. I will not let you down. You will be very, very uh, impressed, I hope.
2: Oh, that's right, the president does. We're in big trouble as a country. I think a lot of political observers know that Donald Trump has a lot of authoritarian tendencies. But recently, we're seeing this more troubling trend with him where he's now just openly wearing his authoritarianism on his sleeve. So he said this about the Mueller investigation via Twitter. As has been stated by numerous legal scholars, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. But why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong? In the meantime, the never ending witch hunt led by 13 very angry and conflicted Democrats and others continues into the midterms. So, first and foremost, from a legal standpoint, that's still an open question. He doesn't know whether or not he has the authority to pardon himself because no president has ever tried it. So to just assert unequivocally that he can pardon himself tells us that Regardless if we know whether or not it's legal or not, he's going to do it anyway in the event he is indicted. Now, second of all, at least from a democratic standpoint, a president should absolutely never be able to pardon himself. Because you're elevating the president's status to an even higher level. You're literally placing him above the law at that point. I mean, it's bad enough that... The United States' as presidents can't be prosecuted under the International Criminal Court because no president, including Obama, mind you, has agreed to bind the US to its jurisdiction. So presidents can commit crimes and see no international repercussions for their wrongdoing, but if we come to the conclusion now that presidents can pardon themselves, then we're allowing them to do literally anything with no international or domestic consequences. They'd have virtually unlimited power to do whatever they wanted. That's not democracy. That's tyranny. But the fact that he just declared that he has this power to pardon himself is really troubling. Again, it's an open legal question. I would argue that he does not have the power to pardon himself because a president is a citizen just like everyone else. But if he has the power to pardon himself, then he is superior to citizens. That's essentially what you're saying and allowing him this power. Now, the fact that he's even thinking about pardoning himself in the first place, I think that's pretty suspicious. Why would you even be thinking about this if you were innocent? This isn't how an innocent person would react. And I'm not saying I'm convinced that Mueller will find evidence that he colluded with Russia or committed treason or anything like that. But I mean, since the scope of Mueller's investigation expanded to look into Donald Trump's business dealings, well, now I think there's probably a pretty good chance that Mueller will find evidence that one of Trump's business dealings with foreign oligarchs, Russian or otherwise, may be illegal or pose a conflict of interest of some sort. And let's be real. Donald Trump almost certainly obstructed justice by firing James Comey. James Comey was investigating him. He then fired James Comey. If that's not an obstruction of justice, then I don't know what is. Furthermore, Donald Trump was in violation of the Emoluments Clause on day one when he was sworn in because he refused to place his businesses in a blind trust, which obviously sets up a gigantic conflict of interest. Now, Donald Trump will say, no, I did place them in a blind trust. I gave control of my businesses over to my sons. But the problem is that he's still able to regain control at any time during his presidency. If you place them in a blind trust— You are completely detached. He didn't do that. So he's in violation of the Emoluments Clause. And if you're a president who's violating the Constitution, that's an impeachable offense. But the thing is that Donald Trump supporters don't give a shit at all. They don't care. Let's say hypothetically that President Obama was being investigated and said that he had the power to pardon himself. Do you think that Donald Trump's right-wing supporters... Wouldn't have anything to say about this? Do you think they'd have the same response as if Donald Trump said it? Of course they wouldn't. They would lose their shit. When President Obama was in Nigeria, I believe, and he made this quick comment about how if he were able to run for a third term, he would win, they started speculating about how Obama might cancel the election. I mean, but when Donald Trump says that he literally has the power to pardon himself, we hear crickets from Donald Trump supporters. No objectivity whatsoever. It's just a cult. Whatever Daddy Trump says... It's gospel to us. And let's extend this further. Imagine if Hillary Clinton were president and she said that she had the power to pardon herself they would lose their minds. And a lot of conservatives, I think justifiably so, were angry that James Comey didn't recommend that the Justice Department indict her when she used a non-secure email server. And they were right because there were other individuals like Brian Nishimura that did the same thing and were prosecuted for it. So if we prosecute the peasants for a certain crime, we have to hold the powerful and elite to that same standard. They agreed with that sentiment back then, but now... With Donald Trump essentially saying, yes, we live in a 2 tier justice system where the rich and the powerful can do whatever they want, and I can even pardon myself. Conservatives have absolutely nothing to say about that. They don't care how authoritarian Donald Trump gets. Anything he says is gospel. These people are in a cult. They don't care about Donald Trump's policies. They just like what he has to say because it comes from his mouth. But I'll tell you this, if you care about democracy, you should unequivocally denounce Donald Trump's assertion that he can pardon himself because that is not something that bodes well for the health and safety of democracy because you are setting yourself up for authoritarianism. I mean, it's it's already bad enough that we've been sliding Into authoritarianism, or at a minimum, our democracy has been decaying due to money and politics turning our society into an oligarchy. But now, if you're saying that the president has the power to pardon himself, I mean, you're relinquishing all power that the people have when it comes to holding elected officials accountable. So, no, he shouldn't have the power to pardon himself. And if you're honest, in saying that you care about America and American American democracy, you would call Donald Trump out regardless if you support him or not. But again, these aren't honest actors. They're in a cult and they don't realize it. They think they've been red-pilled. It's a fucking joke. As far as we know, the summit between President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is back on again, at least for now, and in an act of good faith, Kim Jong-un actually sent Donald Trump a letter that looks even bigger than it is in actuality in Donald Trump's tiny little baby hands. But what's really interesting to me about this story is that when Donald Trump was describing the contents of this letter to the press... He contradicted himself blatantly so within minutes and I think this might be a new record for Donald Trump. So
1: take a look. A letter was given to me by Kim Jong Un and that letter was uh, a very nice letter. Oh, would you like to see what was in that letter? You would you like it How letter? much? How much? You how give, much?
4: You give us the of what the uh,
1: it was a very interesting letter and at some point I may be it may be appropriate and maybe I'll be able to give it to you maybe you'll be able to see it and maybe fairly soon. But uh, really, this was a letter presentation that ended up being a two-hour conversation.
4: Why did the letter, did you send anything back?
1: Uh, no, I didn't, I haven't seen the letter yet. I purposely didn't open the letter. I haven't opened it. I didn't open it in front of the director. I said, would you want me to open it? He said, you can read it later. I may be in for a big surprise, <laughs> folks. That's not normal.
2: He's the president, and he just revealed that he lied. And see, the problem with pathological liars is that when you lie so much, you are bound to contradict yourself because you just can't keep your story straight. Whereas if you stick to the truth, well, you're not going to contradict yourself because you're going to say the same thing over and over. So why did Donald Trump talk about the letter if he didn't actually read the letter i mean it makes no sense it's something that really he doesn't have to lie about but decided to lie about anyway it really gives you some insight into his character this is not a reasonable well-adjusted human being normal people don't do that they don't lie brazenly so about something that you really don't need to lie about what was the point of that I don't get it. I really don't. And this is dangerous for democracy because a president shouldn't lie this much. I mean, he is living in his own reality. I mean, since he's become president, fact checkers have determined that he's made more than 3,000 false or misleading public statements. And at his recent rally in Nashville alone, he made dozens of false statements, over 30. And when you look at his PolitiFact scorecard, he says things that are deemed either mostly false, false, or pants on fire 69% of the time, meaning he lies more than he actually tells the truth. So I think that it's gotten to the point where Donald Trump lies so much that when he says a lie, he's not even consciously aware of the fact that he's telling a lie. Like when normal people like you and I, we tell a white lie, we're aware that we're lying. We think about it. We feel uh, either guilty or you know apathetic about it, but we, we realize that we're lying. When Donald Trump lies... I don't think he even acknowledges the fact that he's lying. I think he's just saying words and the words that are coming out of his mouth are detached from what he's thinking in his head. It's just hot air. He's a compulsive liar. So it's not just that he likes to lie, it's that it's his second nature. And I think that this clip, more so than anything, really shows that. And again... When you think about the health and safety of democracy, to have someone at the top this brazen about lying, needless to say, that's incredibly dangerous. To lie about something so stupid. I mean, when you extrapolate that to other issues, if he's willing to lie about this, what else is he willing to lie about? A lot. So, um, yeah, this really stood out to me uh, that he didn't even realize he just really contradicted himself in a massive way within minutes it's just embarrassing up until last year religious congregations were not allowed to engage in any political activities whatsoever if they wanted to keep their tax-exempt status but now in 2018 we're starting to see that change so why is this happening well, you go back to last year and see that President Donald Trump signed a so called religious liberty executive order that rendered the Johnson Amendment, a provision in the U.S. tax code, completely useless. So the Johnson Amendment would allow the IRS to strip churches of their tax-exempt status if they publicly endorsed or opposed political candidates, but Donald Trump's executive order essentially stopped the IRS from enforcing that particular law. So what Donald Trump's executive order did is embolden televangelists, and now with their millions upon millions of followers, they can openly, publicly stump for Republicans like Donald Trump, and not have to worry about losing their tax-exempt status. And we're seeing this play out in real time. So as Neil Young of HuffPost reports, Franklin Graham is on a crusade across California. But unlike his father, Billy, who launched his career as the world's most famous evangelist in Los Angeles and held numerous revivals across the state through the decades, Franklin has not come to California to win souls to Christ. Instead, he's looking for voters he can deliver to the Republican Party. As Elizabeth Diaz reported in the New York Times last Sunday, Graham has embarked on a two-week bus tour up the middle of the state holding 10 campaign-style rallies in anticipation of California's June 5th primary. In doing so, he hopes to mobilize evangelicals in several important battleground house districts and other purplish spots in the otherwise very blue state. Now, previously, televangelists would be apprehensive about doing this sort of thing because, again, they would risk losing lots of money if they had their tax-exempt status taken away from them. And it also would make them look bad. But now, they're getting so bold, they don't even care how it looks. And let's go back to why they were given tax-exempt status to begin with. It was because there was this idea that churches were essentially nonprofits. They provide a public good in the form of food for the needy and resources for their communities. But now, that gig is up. They've now amassed so much wealth that I think it's a mischaracterization to refer to them as churches. They're businesses. They operate as businesses and some of these congregations run by televangelists have millions upon millions of dollars and in fact, I think calling them businesses is probably a little bit too kind these are scam artists who dupe millions of people in their congregations into giving them money because they think they'll receive blessings in return in fact these televangelists are becoming so shameless that one actually made national headlines when he decided to ask his followers to buy his fourth private jet for him which costs $54 $54 million. And I'm not making this up. This was Jesse Duplantis's pitch to his congregation as to why he deserves his fourth
1: private jet. You know, I've owned three different jets in my life and I and used them and just burning them up for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people believe that Preachers shouldn't have jets. I really believe that preachers ought to have and go on every available voice, every available outlet to get this gospel preached to the world. We're believing God for a brand new Falcon 7X so we can go anywhere in the world one stop. Now, people say, my Lord, can't you go with this one? Yes, but I can't go at one stop. And you see, if I can do it with one stop, I can fly it for a lot cheaper because I have my own fuel farm. And that's what's a blessing of the Lord. But this one here, I have to stop. And then you pay those exorbitant prices for jet fuel all over the world. We've asked the Lord Jesus Christ and we're believing God. In fact, he told me, Jesse, it was one of the greatest statements the Lord ever told me. He said, Jesse, you want to come up where I'm at? And I said, what do you mean? He said that before you ask, I'll answer Isaiah 65, 24. I said, yes, Lord. He said, I want you to believe me for a Falcon 7X. So I said, "Okay," But the first thing I thought of was how I'm going to pay for it. And then that great statement that he told me in 1978 flooded into my mind and said, Jesse, I didn't ask you to pay for it. I ask you to believe for it. Now, think about that for a minute. So pray about becoming a partner to it if you'd like to. And if you don't, you don't have to. But I wish you would, because let me tell you something about it. All it's going to do is touch people. It's going to reach people. It's going to change lives one soul at a time. I don't want to learn how to fly it. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I really believe that if Jesus was physically on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. Think about that for a minute.
2: Now, after watching that video, I don't know how anyone can think it's unreasonable to tax these businesses. Churches don't operate as nonprofits anymore, especially the ones ran by these televangelists. They're businesses, so they should be taxed. But instead, they are amassing ungodly amounts of wealth. Franklin Graham, he's worth $25 million. That guy you just saw, Jesse Duplantis, he's worth $50 million dollars. You're trying to tell me that they don't need to pay taxes? These people don't follow their own religion. They are scam artists. Their own Bible, specifically Matthew 19:24, says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for anyone who was rich to enter the kingdom of God. So they're not even a religion. They are scam artists. And since they're not doing what churches were originally intended to do, which is what granted them their tax-exempt status in the first place, which is help people, then we need to tax them and force them to help people. Tax them and make those dollars go towards health care. Make their tax dollars strengthen our social safety net. That's what Jesus would want, right? I mean, they're not doing it, so you have to compel them to do it. We gave them this tax-exempt status because, well, if they're helping people, then sure, they're basically a nonprofit. Why burden them with this uh, tax? But they're not doing that. Now we tax them. But unfortunately, Donald Trump made it so that way they not only are no longer going to be at risk of losing their tax-exempt status, but now they can openly campaign for Republicans. So these are scam artists. These are not honest people. They are duping over their congregation. But with that being said, they wouldn't have a following in the first place if people stopped buying their bullshit. Ask yourself this. If you believe in God, if you uh, subscribe to an organized religion, if you are truly an individual who thinks that your faith can't be moved then put it to the test. It's what I did. I grew up very religious and a lot of atheists were telling me things that I, frankly, didn't know how to respond to. So I tried to learn about their arguments so I would learn how to basically combat what they were saying and I ended up becoming an atheist myself. In fact, read your own Bible, actually read it thoroughly and there will be so many contradictions that alone might make you an atheist if you truly believe in god put your faith to the test and you have nothing to lose you'll come out of this stronger knowing how to um argue against atheists like myself but as a society we have to acknowledge that there is no place for organized religion i'm not implying that we should ban religion or um marginalize individuals who subscribe to religious organizations All I'm saying is that as individuals, we have to understand that historically, religion has always been used as a tool to control the masses. And it's still being used that way. It's being used to scam people over innocent people who just want blessings in their lives. Well, look. You may subscribe to religion because it makes you feel better, because you feel as though you know um, you you are happy about the fact that there's an afterlife, but you would be surprised just how liberating it feels to be free for, from religion and to think for yourself. So, getting back to the original point, that's going a tangent. These guys are scam artists. And they should absolutely be taxed. But what Donald Trump did last year in signing the so-called religious liberty executive order is emboldened them. And now they're getting involved in politics because they have something to gain personally from doing that. And it's absolutely disgusting. The Supreme Court recently ruled on a case involving a bigoted baker who refused to serve a gay couple. Now, ultimately, they sided with the baker, but their ruling was narrow, meaning that this decision doesn't set precedent for future cases. Now, for more on this, we'll go to Reuters, who reports the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday handed a victory on narrow grounds to a Colorado Christian baker who refused, for religious reasons, to make a wedding cake for a gay couple, stopping short of setting a major precedent allowing people to claim exemptions from anti-discrimination laws based on religious beliefs. The justices, in a 7-2 decision, said the Colorado Civil Rights Commission showed an impermissible hostility toward religion when it found that Baker Jack Phillips violated the state's anti-discrimination law by rebuffing gay couple David Mullins and Charlie Craig in 2012. The state law bars businesses from refusing service based on race, sex, marital status, or sexual or Orientation. The ruling concluded that the commission violated Phillips' religious rights under the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. The vote was narrow not because of the number of justices for and against, but because of the slim precedent it sets. The justices did not issue a definitive ruling on the circumstances under which people can seek exemptions from anti-discrimination laws based on their religious views. The decision also did not address important claims raised in the case, including whether baking a cake is a kind of expressive act protected by the Constitution's free speech guarantee. Two of the court's four liberals, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan, joined the five conservative justices in the ruling authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who also was the author of the landmark 2015 decision legalizing gay marriage nationwide. So overall, the baker contends that making this cake for a gay couple would violate his sincerely held religious beliefs. But first of all, Your religion is not a legitimate justification for you to discriminate against someone else. Second of all, him baking a cake for a gay couple wouldn't violate his religious beliefs any more than it would violate my atheist beliefs in the event I was a baker who was asked to bake a wedding cake for a Christian couple. If you run a bakery, your job is to bake fucking cakes, and if you open your door to the public, you're implicitly acknowledging that you'll be serving all types of people. You don't get to pick and choose who you don't want to serve based on arbitrary characteristics or immutable characteristics, so if your religion is so restrictive that it literally prohibits you from treating other people as human beings, then you shouldn't be open to the public in the first place. They're not asking you to be the efficient for their wedding, they're asking you for a fucking cake. But because this baker is a special little snowflake, he believes that his religion should give him unlimited authority to discriminate against people he doesn't like. But that is not the way this works. And what's odd to me is that there are even some progressives who seem torn on this issue. Well, do we side with the freedom of the baker or the freedom of the gay couple? Look, put it this way. Let's take gay couple out and substitute that for any other couple. Interracial couple, black couple, Muslim couple. Well, if it's discriminatory in those instances, then the same truth will hold when you apply it to gay couples. And second of all, we don't have to tolerate intolerance; otherwise, tolerance itself wouldn't exist. And this may seem contradictory, but when you look at Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, it makes sense. If you extend tolerance to those who are openly intolerant, it can lead to the extinction of tolerance altogether. So it doesn't mean that you silence these people or kick them out of the country. It just means that if this anti-gay baker wants to go to a homophobic rally on Tuesday, then on Wednesday, when he shows back up at the bakery, he has to follow the law and treat all people equal and not discriminate based on arbitrary, immutable characteristics of other human beings. Now, the response that I often hear, which is widely viewed as a compromise, is that, look, how about this? We'll let bakers discriminate, but what gays can do is they can just choose to take their business elsewhere. Okay, so let's, let's say, hypothetically speaking that we're talking about gas stations and you're in rural Alabama and there's just one gas station and they don't want to serve you because you're gay or you're black, then what do you do? You're fucked. And another thing that conservatives like to say is that, well, look, if someone is going to be openly bigoted against gay people, then obviously they're going to end up going out of business anyway, but at least give them the freedom to be bigoted and deny service to gay people. But that's not what we've seen. When you look at some of these cases, Christians, fundamentalists, evangelicals, right-wingers have come to the defense and raised money for these bigoted bakers. So the opposite of what you said will happen actually did happen in practice. So if we're going to be A modern society, we cannot tolerate this level of overt discrimination against people for arbitrary reasons. I'm not saying you're not allowed to discriminate against people who come in there yelling and cussing at you, you can kick them out, but when it comes to an issue like sexual orientation, which is an immutable characteristic, discriminating against them would be arbitrary, because that's not something that they can control. You can control being a dickhead, which is why if somebody comes in yelling and screaming at you, you have the right to kick them out, but... Someone just being gay can't control that and therefore you shouldn't be able to discriminate against them if you don't like the fact that they're gay. So there's no compromise here. It's immoral. So the only solution here is for right-wing Christian snowflakes to shut the fuck up and bake cakes and do their job. Otherwise, close shop. Former Daily Show host Jon Stewart decided to weigh in on the Roseanne Barr slash Bill Maher slash Samantha B controversy. Um, so I want to get to his remarks, but before we do that, I do want to get you caught up because right after Roseanne made her comments comparing Valerie Jarrett to an ape, well, conservatives targeted Bill Maher and they tried to get him fired because they claimed that when he compared Donald Trump to an orangutan, that was equivalent to Roseanne Barr comparing Valerie Jarrett to an ape. Now, unfortunately for them, Bill Maher didn't budge, but they did find a new target in Samantha Bee, who said this and sparked outrage.
10: After decades of ignoring the issue, Americans are finally paying attention. Well, most of us, Ivanka Trump, who works at the White House, chose to post the second most oblivious tweet we've seen this week. You know, Ivanka, that's a beautiful photo of you and your child. But let me just say, one mother to another, do something about your dad's immigration practices, you
5: feckless cunt.
10: He listens to you. Put on something tight and low-cut and tell your father to fucking stop it.
2: Now, of course, because she called Ivanka Trump the C word, right wingers found what they thought was a double standard and then called on Samantha B. in mass to be fired as well, in the same way that uh, Roseanne was. Now, the mainstream media essentially went along with this narrative. Case in point.
9: Okay, a couple of things. One, uh, imagine for a second how liberals would have reacted if Roseanne or a current conservative TV star had used that language describing Valerie Jarrett. Whether you agree with the president's policies or not, calling a senior advisor inside the United States government or anyone for that matter, the C word, is like I said at the top, it's outrageous, it is unacceptable and should be called out. She could have easily made her point without using those words, a point that by the way is totally lost because she used that language. Doing this, she is no better than the very behavior she criticizes. In fact, she becomes part of the problem. And now, like most entertainers who go political and get into hot water, she'll say, whoa, 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 I'm, I'm just a comedian. But the problem is it doesn't work here. She's Samantha B. She's in this position of leadership, not to mention a role model to millions of young girls and to women, and to use that word, from a woman <clears throat> to another woman. Offensive is offensive. Wrong is wrong, whether you are on the left or the right. And what Samantha B did is not only beneath her, it is beneath where we should be as a society. So
2: that was, I think, a good example of the public's general reaction when right-wingers put pressure on TBS to respond to Samantha B. And Samantha B then responded by doing what liberals always do she apologized. On Twitter, she stated, I would like to sincerely apologize to Ivanka Trump and to my viewers for using an expletive on my show to describe her last night. It was inappropriate and inexcusable. I crossed the line and I deeply regret it. In other words, please, TBS, don't fire me. I know I said the C word and uh, right-wingers called me out for saying a naughty word, but please don't fire me. I don't want to be like Roseanne. Um, So look, (laughs) the question is, why would individuals on the right who ostensibly purport to be against outrage culture be outraged by the use of a naughty word it's because they're not this is a game to them they don't care about the content or the context what they care about is winning for their team and uh, playing the left and they always do this really successfully and as an individual who dislikes Samantha Bee very much Beth and Alien on Twitter perfectly summarized my stance on this. She says Samantha Bee's a huge disappointment to progressives. That being said MAGA chuds upset she called Ivanka a feckless cunt. Spare me your fake outrage. You have zero respect for women. You elected president pussy grab and vice president funerals for abortions. So shut the fuck up. And that's just it. This isn't about them being offended. This isn't about a double standard. This is about them scoring points for their political team. Because even though I frankly can't stand Samantha B because she's a political hack, still, to equate... What she did with what Roseanne did is just nonsense. It's a false equivalence. Roseanne invoked an old racist stereotype about black people to attack someone, whereas Samantha B called another woman a naughty name. It's as simple as that. But again, in explaining this, I'm suggesting that context matters to conservatives, but it doesn't because, again, this is nothing more than a game to them. And what really separates the Roseanne issue from the Samantha B issue is that now this is literally a potential violation of Samantha Bee's First Amendment right because the president called on her to be fired. The most powerful person in the world tweeted out this. Why aren't they firing no-talent Samantha Bee for the horrible language used on her low-rating show? A total double standard, but that's okay. We are winning and will be doing so for a long time to come. So mind you that the right, you know, they claim to care a lot about free speech and the First Amendment, but the First Amendment really pertains to the government shutting down speech. Well, here you have the highest-ranking government official calling for someone to be shut down because of something she she said, and um, what do conservatives have to say about this? squat. So, this is nothing more than a game to them. I want to keep saying that and repeating that so it gets through liberals' heads. This is a game. They don't care about outrage. They just want to play you. Now, Jon Stewart actually spoke about this, and I think he perfectly illuminated exactly what Republicans are doing and why liberals always get duped by them. So as mediaites, Caleb Howe explains, Stewart said that the right sets up a moral code and then doesn't follow it, which is the same argument that the right made last week, summarized by CNN's Brooke Baldwin here. In Stewart's case, he singles out Trump's hypocrisy in objecting to Samantha B. They don't give a shit about the word cunt, he said. That is probably what he says instead of please, I'm guessing. The Daily Beast's Matt Wilstein adds that Stewart seemed to think the apology was a waste of time. Liberals can never make the right give up this we're the victim's game because it's a game, it's strategy and it's working. And Jon Stewart is 100% right here. These are not honest actors. They are ruthless and they will stoop to any level. They don't care about principles. They don't care about a moral code. They just want to fucking ruin the left and get the left. That's all that they care about. So liberals need to stop fucking apologizing. Just stop. Because when you apologize, you're only playing the Republican Party's game. And if you don't play, you can't lose. But we fall for it every single time... They'll call out a supposed double standard, completely removing the context from the situation altogether, but still saying it's a double standard, and since media outlets like CNN want to pretend to be fair and unbiased, they will play along with the conservatives game, and then everyone else will play along with the conservatives game, and then, um, they get the left to buckle. Well, you have to take a stand. Stop fucking apologizing to the right. They don't care. They're not outraged. They claim to be against outrage culture. They only use this as a strategy to get the left and score political points for their team. That's all this is about. Candace Owens, formerly known as Red Pill Black on YouTube, is undoubtedly a rising star in the conservative movement. I think she's probably one of the most prominent names now in American conservatism. So, She recently appeared on Joe Rogan's podcast and they were getting along just fine until the issue of climate change came up and she said something so utterly ridiculous that Joe Rogan couldn't not call her out for her bullshit take a look
10: i fell victim to the idea that like it was progress it was progress it was progress we have to care about the environment it was progress and it's like no like we've been losing america has been losing and donald trump understood that in in a way that i didn't and i don't think
0: we have to care about the environment like not even a little bit
10: not even a little bit no um, okay let me let me clarify this i don't throw trash on the ground like I'm, i'm not saying like we need to like you know, trash the environment. Like, um, but do I believe in climate change? No.
0: You don't believe in climate change? No,
10: well, I think the climate always changes, I guess is what I should say. Do I believe that this is like, you know, an issue that... um is being, that, that is fa- global warming, which they've changed conveniently. They got rid of the word once scientists started disproving it. Now they only say cli- climate change. Um, no, I, I think that that was just a way to extract dollars from Americans. I don't at all believe. They had no actionable plan. It was great for Trump to get out of that deal. It was terrible.
0: Okay, but this is an incredibly complicated subject. Right. And if you would have to talk to a bunch of different scientists right. and see how they gather data and see what they understand about CO2 levels and what's the danger of them right. and what can combat it. And what could not have you done all this, or no. do you so take think, this flippant opinion? No, it's, it's, based it's, listen, on the I'm party not, this line. is not,
10: this wouldn't be the hill I died on, right? But it's not about the I just genuinely, I, I've read a ton about it, but what I would not read? be able to, I would not be able to come to you and say, like, this is my strong opinion, but here's like the easiest way to say this, right? Okay, the fact that there is a disparity in the science community about whether or not it's real is enough to it's
0: very little, you know, very little disparity. Most, most, most scientists, most the the vast majority agree that human beings are negatively affecting climate change yeah the vast majority
10: yeah, I, I don't. I just, I just don't think so.
0: 2014, the vast majority, 87 percent of scientists said that human activity is driving global warming. Yet only half the American public public ascribed to that view. So,
10: well, what website? 87,
0: this? percent and this is Scientific American. Yeah.
10: Yeah. Dot com though, like, because that, that means it's it's making money. I don't trust that. If it was a .org, I would probably take that. But that this is just a random website, and I, well, I don't Scientific trust. Well, Scientific
0: American sorry. is not necessarily a random website. It's, yeah,
10: I don't. I don't believe this like at all. Just so you know.
0: You don't believe it like at all? <laughs> I, I genuinely
10: I genuinely don't believe it. I know you do, but I genuinely well, don't believe it. I like
0: believe 87%? most of the time the consensus of scientists that are studying the data. Right. Global warming, global ch- climate change is definitely real. It's happening. Well the question but it's is why is it always Yes. It has always happened. So what
10: what are we what is the this the is the real, climate change? Yes, the climate changes. It was different weather yesterday than it was today. Again. I didn't do a deep dive on all of this because I I read about it because it was at a forefront of a discussion. So I read about it all night and my conclusion was that they started pulling up all of these studies from the person that, you know, did this that I did a deep dive on and they started showing how like these community of scientists were in fact somewhere behind that dot org is or someone that was being funded. So to me the issue got too politicized for me To to, to believe that global warming was something that was going to um, Wipe now, out the world now scientists get funded.
0: That is a fact. Yes, but that doesn't mean that the funding affects the scientific research right. and the data Which they all agree on and this is universally across the entire planet. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of scientists would not stake their reputation on false
2: data So there's a lot that I want to say about that clip. Um, the full clip was actually 20 minutes, so I will link to that down below in the description box so you can see the whole thing. But for the most part, I kind of um, isolated the the parts of that that I really wanted to address um, specifically. So she starts off by saying that she doesn't think we have to care about the environment, not even a little bit, because America has been losing That means absolutely nothing. To say that America is winning or losing is an empty platitude that Donald Trump likes to say that really doesn't mean anything. It's so vague and empty and amorphous that his supporters can kind of fill in the blanks and apply meaning to it themselves. But in actuality, when Donald Trump says it, it really has no meaning at all. So to say that we don't have to care about the environment, quote, not even a little bit, because America has been losing, doesn't make sense. You're not saying anything meaningful, Candace. She also states, quote, it's an issue that global warming, which they changed conveniently, they got rid of the word when scientists started disproving it. Now they they only say climate change. Well, that's because global warming is kind of a misnomer. Even though it's true that the climate is warming overall, the term global warming kind of implies that the only consequence of global warming will be warmer weather, when in actuality, that's not really true. It will cause the entire climate to change. And that includes more volatility in weather, more extreme weather patterns, ocean acidification, desertification. I mean, there's a lot that will result in increased temperatures, not just warmer weather. So the reason why that term was changed justifiably so, I think, is because climate change is just, it's more accurate. As a result of increasing temperatures, the entire climate is changing. So, I mean, that's, that's such a disingenuous point that I always hear conservatives make. Now, another thing that kind of struck me is Joe Rogan pulled up a source from Scientific American, and she said that she doesn't trust them because they're a dot-com, but if they were a dot-org, then she probably would trust it. I mean, what kind of logic is this? That's that's such a weird thing to say. Uh, a website is only legitimate if it's a .org. So does that mean that you never get your facts and information and news from any .coms, including Breitbart, World Net Daily, The Drudge Report? She also states, um, I don't believe this, like, at all, just so you know. I genuinely don't believe it. So she is simply against climate change because she doesn't, quote, believe it, but Candace, maybe you haven't heard what your boss, Charlie Kirk, said about beliefs, but he states, quote, liberals have feelings and emotion, conservatives have logic, history, perspective, science, reason, facts, math, principles, ethics, values, dialogue, and common sense. So, Candace, according to your own boss, it's us liberals that only have feelings and emotion. Fuck what we believe, right? You guys, conservatives, have science. So, shouldn't you put your beliefs which is part of your feelings and emotions aside and go with what the science says since conservatives are the ones with science on their side? That's what your own boss, Charlie Kirk, said. What happened to that? She also says here, does the climate change? Yes, the climate changes. It was different weather yesterday than it was today. Now, this is probably one of the most absurd talking points from conservatives because it shows just how ignorant they really are. They don't know. Candace is implicitly admitting here that she has no idea that there's actually a difference between climate and weather. (laughs) Climate is not the same thing as weather. Climate describes the long-term average weather patterns over time, usually decades, whereas weather describes short-term behavior. She also doesn't believe in climate change because someone who did a study alleges that they started pulling up all these studies and they started showing how this community of scientists were somewhere behind that .org or someone that was being funded. So to me, the issue of global warming is too politicized. Let's take a moment and try to digest her claim here because then you realize just how idiotic it is. She's alleging here that because scientists receive grants to study climate change, those grants supposedly bias the results of those studies. She has nothing to say about fossil fuel companies spending millions of dollars every single year lobbying Congress against policies that would combat climate change because that would hurt their profit margin. That's not the real conspiracy to her, though. The problem, in her view, is that these scientists who are so biased sometimes receive grants to do studies. I mean, it's it's completely nonsensical. Her logic here—I mean, there's no logic to what she's saying— and ask yourself this, Candace, if climate change is a hoax, why do conservatives keep moving the goalpost? At first, they just denied that the climate was warming at all. But then eventually, um, the evidence became so irrefutable that they couldn't deny that the planet was warming. So then they moved the goalposts to say, well, it's warming, but humans aren't causing it. So they still deny climate change, but they deny anthropogenic climate change, which means that humans are the ones that are exacerbating climate change, which is really at the crux of the issue here. Because if human beings are the ones who are spreading up climate or speeding up climate change, rather, then we can do something about it. So overall, their goal is to get us to not act with regard to climate change. And when you look at just facts, Earth just passed its 400th warmer-than-average month. How can you hear about that and deny the reality of climate change? There are coastal cities around the world, like Rotterdam, who are working on solutions as we speak. And more extreme weather conditions are becoming more common, which is exactly what scientists stated would happen. I mean, at this point, to deny climate change is to deny common sense. Humans are obviously causing it. When you look at CO2 levels since industrialization, humans have increased the amount of CO2 that we are pumping into the atmosphere bigly. And CO2 is a greenhouse gas that warms the planet. So if you pump lots of CO2 into the atmosphere, well, put two and two together, you realize that we are obviously warming the planet. But the thing about conservatives is that no matter how much facts or studies you cite, they can never be convinced on this issue nothing you say can convince them they will continue to toe the party line no matter what however when it comes to issues like god well you don't need facts you don't need studies all you need is faith and these are the people that claim that they've been red-pilled people who deny reality people who buy into organized religion they're the ones who are claiming to be red-pilled and all of us were just brainless drones I mean, I don't think they realize how foolish they look. So Candace Owens, she's not a free thinker. She's a Republican Party hack. She's a blue pill hack. And she's towing the Republican Party line. If they deny climate change, she denies climate change. If they decide that all of a sudden, well, you know what? We want to be the party that actually fights against climate change. She would flip like that because these are what conservatives do. They're all about towing the Republican Party line. She's just nothing more than another hack. She's not a free thinker. She's been blue-pilled by religion and Republican Party propaganda. And it's really sad that people like this are currently getting huge platforms. It's sad because they're lying and they're spreading misinformation and making Americans dumber. So, on this program, we've been talking a lot about Israel's ongoing massacre of Palestinian protesters near the Gazan border, and I want to talk about one individual named Razan al-Najir. Now, she is a 21-year-old medic who's been a hero throughout this process. She's been putting herself in danger in order to treat wounded protesters, and she's not even getting paid to do this. She's doing it for humanitarian reasons. But in spite of the fact that she was there to help people, she wasn't even part of the protest, in spite of the fact that she was clearly wearing a medical vest, well, a sniper from the Israeli army targeted her and killed her. So as CNN reports, Razan al-Najir is known to the world as a 21-year-old Palestinian medical nurse shot dead by an Israeli sniper during protests on Friday. To her parents, she was a beloved daughter who died just a few hundred meters from her home in Khan Yunis, close to the fence that separates Gaza from Israel. On Saturday, thousands took to the streets of the Gazan city for the young medic's funeral. The streets and lampposts surrounding Razan's home are now adorned with her smiling image. Her father, Ashraf al-Najir, takes CNN up three flights of stairs and into their apartment. The rest of the family, their small home now filled with mourners, sit in disbelief. Razan's mother, Sabrine, dressed entirely in black, clutches her daughter's blood-soaked medical vest. She tells us Rosin had been volunteering since the beginning of the protests, working without pay. I was afraid for her, but Rosin told us that she wasn't afraid. She felt obliged to help and was clearly wearing a medical vest, she says. Sabrine says her daughter may have been small, but she was strong, and her only weapon was her medical vest. I'm protected by my vest, she would tell her mother and father before heading out to help. God is with me. I am not afraid. She put her life on the line. And... Was courageous. She did something that I think a lot of people would be disinclined to do, to put their lives in danger. But she did it anyway, because she felt like this was the right thing to do. And that didn't stop her from being targeted by the IDF. Before her death, about a month ago, she actually spoke with the New York Times explaining why she was doing what she was doing, and I do want to play that clip for you in order to put a face to her name, because it's easy to remain detached and desensitized if you only read about her, but I want you to hear her voice. I want us to realize that this was this was a real person with good intentions who was killed in cold blood by a rogue war criminal regime.
6: (ressunny) احنا هدفنا واحد هو بس انقاذ واخلاء ونوصل رساله للعالم انه احنا بدون سلاح قادرين نعمل كل شيء هاي الخيمه هي الخيمه اليوميه بتخص احنا كمتطوعين احنا كل يوم بنكون موجودين في هذا المكان انا بحب انتماءنا للوطن يعني هذا عمل انساني ما بدنا عليه مقابل احنا بدنا نقدر تعبنا الله بس مش مستعد. مش م... يعني ما بدنا مقابل من اي حدا لا ولا توظيف بدناش كثير سالوا بابا بنتك هاي طب ما بتاخذ راتب هيك حكى لهم انا بنتي وافتخر فيها انها بتقدم شيء انساني لابناء لابناء وطني يعني كمان بنت وخصوصي احنا المراه عندنا منتقده كثير في المجتمع بس المجتمع لازم يتقبلنا غصبا عنه لو بدهش يتقبلنا بارادته بيتقبلنا غصبا عنه لان احنا عندنا قوه اكثر من اي راجل القوه اللي احنا بنمتلكها بالقوه اللي استرجلت فيها اول كااول مسعفه في الاسبوع الاول بتحدى الاقيها عند اي شخص يعني
2: 21 ييرز Now, Nikki Haley, on behalf of the United States, has been the sole vote on the UN Security Council, blocking not just an investigation into Israel's ongoing massacre of Gazan protesters, but the mere condemnation of their actions. Won't even allow the UN to condemn Israel. Is this going to be enough for you, Nikki? Are you going to finally allow the UN to condemn Israel here? Is this enough? This is a war crime. Targeting a first responder is unacceptable. It's a violation of international law. Are you still going to be complicit, Nikki Haley? And Donald Trump? Mike Pompeo? John Bolton? Now, thankfully, Israel is actually claiming that it will investigate the situation, but... If it's not an independent investigation by the UN or impartial international organization, then the conclusion they come to will likely be meaningless because they've been trying to rewrite history before our very eyes. So what's to say they won't do it again in this case? So I don't, I don't have much to say about this situation. This is a heartbreaking story. The lives of her family will be forever damaged because of what Israel did because they foster this culture of demonizing Palestinians and dehumanizing Palestinians. And they train them to think that they're subhumans, so their lives are less meaningful than everyone else's. So you can just kill them in cold blood and target them indiscriminately, including first responders. And it doesn't matter because their lives are meaningless. This is... An outrage. And the fact that there's not collective disgust in our country over this is mind-boggling. This This is really upsetting. And my heart goes out to her family, because truly, she was a really good person. She was motivated by altruism, and unfortunately, it got her killed. But she died knowing that she was doing the right thing. Last week, we talked about how three pro-corporate centrist Democrats were actually bragging about how they just voted to deregulate Wall Street. Now, I speculated that the reason why they were doing this was because they wanted to solicit donations from wealthy campaign contributors in the financial industry. And now we're seeing how that strategy is paying off for at least one of those senators. And that is Heidi Heitkamp, who is now receiving the backing of one of the Koch brothers' most prominent organizations, Americans for Prosperity. So, according to Brian Schwartz of CNBC, North Dakota Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp will be going into the congressional midterm elections knowing she's received support for at least one piece of legislation by the unlikeliest of groups. The Koch Political Network, Americans for Prosperity, an arm of the influential network supported by conservative billionaire industrialists Charles and David Koch, is unleashing a digital advertising campaign on Friday... Thanking Heitkamp for co-sponsoring the Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief, and Consumer Protect Act, a bill that rolls back Dodd-Frank regulations mainly on community banks or those with less than $100 billion in assets. It recently passed in Congress with bipartisan support. Congress achieved a significant milestone in lifting some of the toughest restrictions Dodd-Frank placed on small banks and their consumers. This was a bipartisan effort made possible by lawmakers like Heidi Heitkamp, who put politics aside to work together, Tim Phillips, president for Americans for Prosperity, said in a statement. While we don't agree with Senator Heitkamp on everything, particularly her vote against tax relief, we commend her for taking a stand against the leaders of her party to do the right thing. We hope to find common ground and work with Senator Heitkamp on other issues moving forward, including making tax relief permanent, he added. The move to support Heitkamp comes only two months after the Coke Network launched a six-figure ad buy attacking her for voting against the Republican tax reform bill in December. At the time, Americans for Prosperity put about $450,000 towards the advertising blitz, which ran throughout her state on television and digital outlets. She's one of the 10 Senate Democrats seeking re-election this year in states President Donald Trump won during the 2016 presidential election. So before we get to the substance of the article, I want to decode some of the Orwellian terms used. When they say tax relief, they mean tax cuts for the rich. When they talk about small banks, they're talking about large banks. Because if you are a bank that has 50 billion dollars, you're not a small bank. I hate to break it to you, but you're not a small bank. You are a large bank that needs to be regulated so your reckless behavior doesn't fuck up the economy for all of us. So now that we got that out of the way, this is absolutely disgusting. Is it true that Heidi Heitkamp didn't ask, presumably, for the Koch brothers to advertise in her favor? No. But here's what you do if they buy an ad for you and you are a principled Democrat, a principled liberal, you say, keep your money, don't advertise for me ever again, I speak for myself, and I don't want anything to do with Americans for Prosperity, or the Koch brothers who ruined not just the country and corrupted the country, but ruined the fucking planet with their corporations. And the fact that a Democrat would be loathsome enough to attract the Koch brothers. In and of itself, that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about Heidi Camp. It's absolutely disgusting, and it is true that one of the Koch brothers is retiring, but I don't want liberals to jump the gun and think that this is a victory, because his legacy will carry on. His brother will carry the torch, and when both of them retire, those organizations that they created, they will continue to... Pour money into elections and corrupt an entire party, the Republican Party. So, um, yeah, I, I checked her Twitter feeds on both of her accounts, her official Senate account and her personal account. Nothing about the Cook brothers backing her. I would be embarrassed if I were a politician in the Democratic Party and The Koch brothers bought an ad thanking me for something I did. Imagine what a Republican would do if George Soros decided to do an advertisement for them. They would distance themselves like that. They would say, we don't want anything to do with George Soros. That is a toxic political figure. I don't want my constituents to think that I'm associated with him in any way, shape, or form. But Heidi Heitkamp, she's sitting here thinking, well, the Koch brothers want to advertise for me. Is it really that bad? Why don't you just switch parties? You're not a Democrat. You're as conservative as most Republicans, with the exception of social issues. You're not a Democrat. So I don't get why you don't just leave the party. It makes no sense. Give Democrats an option to get someone who's actually liberal there. But she thinks that since Donald Trump won that state, well, she has to pretend to be a Republican. But why would voters... Vote for the pseudo Republican when they could get the real thing. Why would Democratic Party voters more specifically come out to support you knowing that you just voted to deregulate Wall Street and fuck them over? Centrism and neoliberalism in the Democratic Party has turned that party into ashes. And it's allowed Republicans to completely dominate and become so right wing that they're essentially unchecked because the Republican or the Democratic Party is too corporatist to oppose them in an effective way. And this is what we get. It's absolutely disgusting. This has got to stop. Party leaders like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and even Tom Perez as spineless as they are, have got to rein people like Heidi Heitkamp in. This is unacceptable. If your Democrats are doing things that are attracting praise of the Koch brothers, they're not Democrats, they're Republicans. The FCC has made it clear that the rollback of net neutrality will take effect officially on June 11th. We are now just days away from the official repeal. Of net neutrality but thankfully there are a lot of states taking bold action to protect net neutrality at the state level and california is one of those states and we've got some pretty good news on that front with regard to their bill. So according to Jacqueline Thompson of The Hill, the California Senate passed a bill Wednesday that would reinstate the net neutrality rules the Federal Communications Commission voted to repeal last year. State senators voted in favor of the bill 23 to 12, The Verge reported. The measure will now go to the state assembly. Under President Obama, our country was moving in the right direction on guaranteeing an open internet, but the Trump-led FCC pulled the rug out from under the American people by repealing net neutrality protections, Democratic Senator Scott Weiner said in a statement last month. Weiner wrote the net neutrality bill. In March, Washington became the first state to pass its own net neutrality rules following the FCC's repeal. However, the FCC included a provision in its repeal that blocks states from passing their own rules, setting the stage for a legal battle over the regulations. So again, in passing these laws at the state level, it's not a guarantee that they won't be struck down, but at the same time, you you still have to do it. These states are taking action and they are protecting their residents from the harmful new policies that these ISPs are going to roll out. It's not going to be immediate right after net neutrality is repealed. It will be subtle, but we will see a lot less freedom on the internet because these ISPs, they stand to gain a lot with the repeal of net neutrality. Now, Scott Wiener has been doing a lot to push for this bill. He authored it, and he's also working with lawmakers in New York to bring this bill to New York. So, this is really someone who truly cares about net neutrality. So, I don't know what else, what his other politics are, but on this issue, he is 100% spot on. So, if you live in the state of California, you know what you have to do. You've got to make some calls. You've got to make sure that individuals within California's state assembly pass this bill. I think it's probably going to pass. So, you should probably make sure that you not only contact people in the state assembly, but you also put pressure on California Governor Jerry Brown to sign this bill into law in the event it does arrive at his desk. And it looks like that will, in fact, happen. My hopes is that this will be signed into law before the repeal of net neutrality officially takes effect. So, um, this is really great news. Um, You know, it's a small update. It's going to be a really big victory once it actually is signed into law. But nonetheless, you've got to celebrate every little victory to keep the momentum going. You have yourself to thank because it's your activism that's keeping this on the agenda for lawmakers. So if you live in a state that doesn't have net neutrality protections, do yourself a favor. Give them a call. Show up and let them know that this is a really important issue and net neutrality is going to be repealed, and they need to take action and represent you. Because your tax dollars fund them. It goes to their paycheck. So you're their boss. So act like it and tell them what you want. Make your opinion known. So it's now been a week since we launched our petition calling on DNC Chairman Tom Perez to resign. And I'm now happy to report that more than eight thousand individuals signed this petition and we are well on our way to our first very huge milestone, 10,000. So needless to say, of course, I'm going to link to that petition in the description box down below. I would encourage you to sign it. I know a lot of people have said, Mike, what's this really going to do in actuality? Do you honestly think that Tom Perez is going to see this and step down? Probably not. But Regardless, we need to make our voices heard. It's important that Tom Perez knows that we are not satisfied with his leadership. And quite frankly, we're disgusted with it because he has done nothing but show contempt for progressives. He purged progressives from the DNC Rules and Bylaws Committee. He got rid of anyone, fired them if they weren't loyal to him, if they endorsed Keith Ellison over him when they were running to be the DNC chair, and he filled those seats with people who are loyal to him and loyal to the Democratic Party establishment. And now, he broke his promise to remain neutral. We can't trust him in 2020. So regardless, if he doesn't budge when he sees this petition, what matters is that we make our voices heard. Hopefully, it gets large enough to where a media outlet will at least mention it. When talking about progressives and Tom Perez. We just need to make our voices heard, and that's incredibly important. And my final pitch to you to sign this is that you have nothing to lose by signing this but a few seconds of your time. So sign this, let your voice be heard, and don't let Tom Perez get away with it being openly corrupt in the same way that Debbie Wasserman Schultz was. Sign the petition, because... What the DNC and Democratic Party establishment are all banking on is progressive apathy. They're hoping we just get so fed up with their corruption that we just stop fighting them. But they need to know that we will never give in. We don't care how much we have to fight if every single day we have to launch a new petition and protest them and call them. We don't care. The point is we never stop fighting them until... They acquiesce to what we want, which is the progressive agenda that their own base supports. So sign the petition, it's the right thing to do, and we need to make our voices heard. I am here with Congressional Candidate Levi Tilleman running to represent the 6th Congressional District of Colorado now you all know Levi from the now viral video of Stanley Hoyer pressuring him to basically get out of the race but today we're gonna we're gonna talk about that but we're also gonna learn more about Levi Tillman and why he is in fact the best choice in the sixth congressional district in spite of what the establishment thinks Levi thanks for coming on the show
5: thanks for having me Mike I'm a big fan
2: Thank you. I, that that makes me really happy to hear that. So I, I wanted viewers to kind of get to know you because I, I think there's a lot of controversy surrounding your campaign, not because of you, but because of what's being done to you. So we'll get to that. But I just want to ask you, why run in such a polarized and difficult environment to run in? What made you decide to do that ultimately?
5: So uh, I decided to run because I believe that we are at a critical juncture in our country's history and that if good people don't stand up and fight for what they believe in, then bad people will win. And that is kind of the most simple way that I can uh, encapsulate my my decision to run. Um, It had a lot to do with Donald Trump winning the presidency. Um, I'm a very progressive guy, but I went out and I campaigned against him in the weeks leading up to the election because I knew that Donald Trump would bring his far right wing agenda into the White House, and that that would fundamentally transform the landscape of American politics in a way that was you know, really damaging to things that I care about deeply. And when he won, I knew immediately I'd been, I'd been working the polls in Philadelphia that night. i have been getting people out to vote. Uh, me and some of my friends were actually uh, working to keep polls open so that all of the voters on the UPenn campus would get a chance to vote and when when we lost i realized that our country was about to change dramatically and that i needed to redouble my efforts to stand up for the progressive values that i believe in
2: Right. That, that totally makes sense. Um, I want to ask you, just out of curiosity, because you were you were campaigning for Donald Trump. Was it more of like an anti? No, 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 no,
5: no not For Donald Trump. Oh, I'm
2: sorry. Against Donald yeah. Trump in favor of Hillary Clinton. To clarify, that's important. Presumably, you voted for Hillary Clinton. Was it mostly an anti Trump vote like a lot of progressives have kind of talked about? Or did you see um, any value in electing Hillary? Or did you kind of think like the rest of us progressives that she's going to be elected and we're going to have to fight like hell to get her to be left wing?
5: Yeah, at, at the end of the day, I knew that Hillary Clinton was a Washington insider and that she wasn't going to bring radical change to Washington. And I do think that we need radical change when it comes to our healthcare system, when it comes to our tax code, when it comes to our educational system. So many issues that we care deeply about um, relate to systems that are broken and systems that, that entrenched interests, don't want to shake up. Um, so, so I knew that Hillary was promising in a lot of ways more of the same, but I knew that Donald Trump was dangerous and that mm-hmm. he represented a, a radical break in a direction that I didn't want our country to go. Um, Donald Trump is an unstable guy and the idea of him being in charge of our nuclear arsenal, that alone is enough to make me campaign <laughs> like hell for almost anyone who would be against Donald Trump.
2: (laughs) And we're kind of seeing that play out right now, how, you know, um, we can see Donald Trump want peace with North Korea seemingly one day, and then the very next day threaten to bomb them, and then the next day change his mind again. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting time. Um, So that makes sense. I've heard kind of the same thing from a lot of people, that it's the current state of politics, it's Donald Trump that got them to run. Um, So specifically, if you were elected, there's a lot that needs fixing in this country. So what do you think would be the policies you focus on um, specifically?
5: So uh, broadly, let's start broadly. Sure. Um, I, think, I think the major theme for our campaign has been economic inequality. And that is something that is um, pervasive across America. It is a trend that is um, intensifying. And in Colorado, where I live, especially in the Denver metro area, um, you see it really starkly. You have a lot of new people moving into the area. You have a lot of new money moving into the area. You have a huge amount of gentrification in places like the north side, where I grew up, which used to be a working class Latino neighborhood, and now is a, a very hip neighborhood with you know, main streets that have juice cleanses and yoga mats and, and all that fun stuff that, that uh, young people with money like. But what I see is the kids that I grew up with, the working class Latino kids in that neighborhood are not benefiting from that economic growth. So for specific policies, the, the way that I think that we need to confront that inequality is first of all, ensure that Americans have access to the, the basic things they need to thrive. And the first among those is health care. And that's why I support Medicare for all. Uh, secondly, we need to make sure that all Americans have access to a high quality education. And that shouldn't rely on what zip code you're in. That shouldn't rely on how wealthy your neighborhood is. And, and when you go to college, I, I don't think that kids who come from middle class backgrounds and working class backgrounds should have to take out a mountain of debt just to get an education and so i support free state four-year education for kids who come from from families that make less than one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year i think that's eminently reasonable we can afford it and it's important then there are are bigger issues surrounding things like climate justice Um, we need to make sure that we're not impoverishing future generations by our decisions today and that is why i'm pushing for a rapid transition to 100% renewable energy. That's my field. That is where I kind of cut my teeth professionally. And it's something that is deeply important to me. And then one final thing that is really important to me is, uh, oh, I I don't want to forget the $15 an hour minimum wage. Right. That is another, that, that that's another solution. inequality and we have to make sure that that's indexed to inflation because if it's not then what we're going to have is is the same situation we have today eventually where we we instituted a minimum wage that made sense a number of decades ago but it gets eroded by inflation over time um and finally americans have to be equal under the law and that includes our president that includes white-collar criminals on wall street and that is one reason why I'm so passionately in favor of impeaching Donald Trump, because I think Donald Trump is a criminal. I think we need to bring him to trial. I think that we need to make sure that all of the facts are on the record. And that's what happens during the course of a Senate trial, that facts finding and that discovery is put on the record. And then we need to require senators to put their name down as to whether They think this man has committed crimes and crimes against the Republic and crimes against the office of the presidency or not. And I I think that's a really important process that that we need to pursue as patriotic Americans.
2: One thing that I like about um, what you said there when I asked you about policy is that you actually led with policy, you know, showing that you stand with something. And I totally agree with all of those things. But um, you you didn't make impeaching Donald Trump a plank of your platform which um, like a uh, basically not necessarily the plank, but the the only thing you care about because I see a lot of centrist Democrats launching campaigns based on opposing Donald Trump. and of course that's important. I don't think Democrats do enough to oppose Donald Trump, but I, I think that the main failure of Democrats who aren't very progressive like yourself is that they're unable to demonstrate that they're not just anti-trump and that they stand for you know uh, other policies as well because yeah, I agree Donald Trump I mean, the day he was sworn in, he was in violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution, and that's just not a minimum. So I don't see how you can't be against Donald Trump if you claim to care about the Constitution. But at the same time, impeaching Donald Trump alone won't suffice as an electoral strategy because there are people hurting. And I think that you you really strike this balance of opposing Donald Trump and also caring about the people. And I'm seeing this a lot with progressives, which is why I think there's so much excitement. Now, getting to excitement, um, I know that you don't take corporate money. So how are you raising money? Are you soliciting small dollar donations? I mean, can you talk about the struggle? Because I know that your opponent in the primary is outraising you. He raised over a million dollars and that's because we all know he's taking money from you know, special interests. So um, how difficult is it to raise money? I know that there's a lot of excitement, but individual donations can only do so much. So can you kind of talk about the financing aspect? Because this is something that I think is really important for progressives that do want to run.
5: Absolutely. So we're a people-powered campaign and what you said is spot on. Our primary opponent was funded very early on by Washington Insiders and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and that's actually a really good segue into the discussion about the Steny Hoyer tape, if you don't mind me going there. Oh, I'd love Uh, to. Yeah. uh, So you're welcome to intro a little bit uh, about what happened there, but essentially Steny Hoyer came to Denver, Colorado to do a fundraiser for my primary opponent, and he also asked for a meeting with me, And, and I accepted that, that uh, offer, but I had a really good sense as to what was going to transpire in that meeting. And so we wanted to make sure that that meeting was on the record. And there are a couple of things that happened in the course of that meeting that I would say are, are not generally focused on by the media, but comprise the real scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people think that the scandal is that Steny Hoyer was trying to push me out of the race. And without a doubt, he was. But the real scandal is the fact that Steny Hoyer admitted openly and brazenly that they had selected the candidate for the 6th Congressional District more than a year before a single vote was cast, even in our party caucuses, that they had selected the candidate for the 6th Congressional District when he still lived outside of the district and nobody in the district knew who he was and the second thing is that he admitted that they had worked proactively since before day one to load this guy up with insider money to load him up with with cash from special interest packs and to load him up with data and endorsements and everything they thought he needed to be a ringer in the primary election um and then i would say that I, I would say i'll add a third part which is there's a third part to the scandal which is they then proceeded to lie about that mm-hmm. and to me that's the part that really makes this kind of sinister that my opponents in the primary and the d decided that their first major strategic decision was to collude against the voters of the sixth congressional district and to deceive them about the exclusive relationship between my primary opponent and Washington insiders who are intent on rigging a primary election. And and that is the real scandal. Steny Hoyer attempting to push me out of the race. That's kinda like the, the cherry on top, but but it's it's not the meat of the scandal. I guess I'm 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 mixing um, different foods there. You don't put a cherry on top of. It. Um but 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 really the 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 meat of the scandal is everything that came before starting very early in 2017 and leading up to November when the DCCC placed my opponents on the red to blue list and then December when Steny Hoyer came to town and held a fundraiser for him and attempted to push me out of the race. And I would say continuing on to uh, about a month ago when Ben Ray Lujan went on national public radio and said point blank that polling showed that my opponent was the only candidate who could beat Mike Kaufman in a general election. And we called on them to release that polling. They pointed eventually to a poll that didn't even include my name. Uh, So I'm I'm not really sure how how that can prove that one candidate can win as opposed to another candidate. And then we called their bluff before they pointed to that poll. And we invested some of our money in conducting our own poll. And what our poll showed, and it was done by a very reputable polling firm, the same one that was used for their poll, is that I actually beat the Republican incumbent with my progressive policies and my background in renewable energy and working for the Obama administration by a larger margin than their Washington insider anointed candidates. And, and, and to me, um, that is the arc of the scandal. It starts in early 2017, if not before, and, and it extends until today when my primary opponent is using PAC money And money from the DCCC and Washington Insiders to purchase, uh, they purchased $120,000 of of television advertising. And the issue that they have focused on is entirely disingenuous. They are focusing on the fact that he, quote unquote, does not take corporate PAC money. We produced a response video to that that I recommend everybody watch, um, which shows that that is demonstrably false. Um, but nonetheless, they're, they're using this insider money. They're using this corporate money. They're using this PAC money to buy hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of advertisements emphasizing the fact that they don't take corporate money. And um, to, to wrap it all up with a bow, um, he refuses to debate. And- Of and, course. And that, yeah. <laughs> And, and so what they're doing is they're turning this into a, a one-way conversation fueled by corporate money and aimed at deceiving the voters of the 6th Congressional District. So if you're interested in learning more, um, check us out on Facebook. Please like the page while you're there. And you can check out my webpage at leviforcolorado.com. Uh, we really do need your support.
2: Um. OK, you said a lot and now I have like 100 different questions. So let me try to um, figure out because th- there's so there's so much about this. First of all, I can't not note the irony in because um, because I mean, your, your district is a very competitive district. So if electability is truly what they care about, then after you um, realize that polling shows that you're better positioned to defeat the Republican, how could they not switch gears and back you or at least remain neutral? If that's truly what they care about. To me, it seems as though they don't really care about electability and what the DCCC and even DNC Democrats at large tend to care about is getting someone in Congress that won't upset the Democratic Party's donors. Um, and I feel like you would upset the Democratic Party's donors, which is why they're all kind of raining down on you to get you to drop out. So a couple questions regarding the incident itself. Um, what made you want to record it. And did Steny Hoyer know that you were recording?
5: So we, we had, had a number of conversations with Washington insiders where they told us one thing behind closed doors and then went out and did something completely different, um, where they promised us one thing and then went out and did another thing, um, where they represented uh, something to us and then went out and misrepresented something else to the media. And so we decided that we had, we'd seen that movie one time too many, and we wanted an insurance policy. We are fighters, and when we feel that somebody is breaking the rules consistently, then we're going to hold them accountable for that
2: did you did you try to use it as leverage um, meaning like did you tell them you have this recording stop trying to rig the process or we're going to release it or did you just kind of put it out
5: there uh no but it's funny that you should mention that because i mentioned the fact that i had the recording to a number of people who i knew who had some relationship with the d triple c and a number of those people who were you know they're just part of the game they suggested that I try to use the recording to blackmail the DCCC. And my immediate response was, if we do that, then we become part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Then we are buying into everything that we need to be standing against. And so um, that was was never even considered um, when it was mentioned by an associate of mine who um, works in Washington DC. It was immediately shot down um, and, and we told him, look, this is, this is the problem with Washington DC today. And, and I think that goes back to your point on Trump. I think if, if we're fighting to impeach Trump because we think that he is damaging the long-term interests of working Americans, uh, if we are fighting to impeach Trump because we think that he is endangering our families and our communities, and he is destroying America's reputation at home and abroad, then fighting for impeachment is the right thing to do. But if we're fighting to impeach Trump because we are making political calculations and we're trying to play three-dimensional chess as to whether this is a good thing for the Democratic Party or a bad thing for the Democratic Party, or conversely, if we don't want to impeach Trump because we're making those same calculations, which is, what we see from Nancy Pelosi, what we see from a number of different leaders in Washington, then we're doing the wrong thing. And I think the guiding principle of of the Democrats in 2018 is pretty simple. It should be do the right thing, fight for truth.
2: I totally respect that because Lord knows um, how scared they would have been if you told them you have this scandalous recording. Uh, So yeah, I I respect that. I wanted to on the subject of the recording, ask you about Nancy Pelosi's response because when she was asked about this recording, she said, I don't have the quote, but just to, uh paraphrase, that she was more worried about whether or not the recording itself was legal, which it it is legal, um, than the actual contents of the recording. And for the most part, it seems as though the Democratic Party, specifically the DCCC, has done nothing to really respond to this in any significant way when a lot of progressives, I mean... if they they want to cultivate trust, don't you think that they should do something? So I just wanted to get your opinion on their response because I thought it was a joke.
5: Absolutely. It has been an incredible disappointment, uh, an incredible disappointment um, up and down the food chain. So Nancy Pelosi's uh, complete lack of concern regarding Steny Hoyer and the DCCC's efforts to rig a Democratic primary a disappointment. Um, Congressman Hoyer's uh, refusal to apologize and to acknowledge uh, what he did is a disappointment and the fact that my primary opponent went into hiding and has not commented once publicly on this is a huge disappointment. Um, He was in league with the DCCC as they sought to deceive the voters of the 6th Congressional District and he needs to come clean. Instead, he's doubling down on that deception Um, and if you look at his ad buy, if you look at the ads that he's running this week, they are not meant to educate. They are meant to mislead and that is what we are fighting against. And I hope all of you guys go to our Facebook page and look at the video that we put together pushing back against those efforts. Um, I, I think it's really powerful.
2: So what I like is that clearly you don't seem to be rattled by Stanley Hoyer because I I just listened to the recording again before uh chatting with you and it seemed like he was a mafia boss like he was saying you know I would like for you to drop out but if you don't drop out then I'd like for you to refrain from attacking Crow or uh criticizing criticizing Crow and you have not taken you know what he said you you are criticizing Crow and that's that's part of a primary so can you can you speak to the importance of primaries and why, even though the democratic party thinks that they're inconvenient and, um, you know, they, they don't like primaries, why we should be having primaries in the age of Trump. When Republicans are winning like nonstop, do you believe, um, this theory that they keep talking about that it weakens the Democrat and the general?
5: Absolutely not. And I would say the opposite is true. When you seek to disenfranchise a significant element of your natural base then that reduces people's enthusiasm during the general election. If you let them have at it, and you say, may the best ideas win, may the best candidate win, then I think that there is a, a very strong argument for exercising unity after that and coming together and working hard to beat the Republican. But when you seek to disenfranchise, a huge portion of the Democratic base then it makes it harder for people to come together after the primary. And that is why what the DCCC and these Washington insiders and, and uh, these special interest packs are doing is so dangerous to democracy and why it is so dangerous to our prospects in November.
2: Totally. Yeah, it- I'm glad I was going to ask you about that, but you kind of touched on it. whether or not you think that disenfranchising voters is more harmful than just having a spirited debate. So, yeah, it, it seems like Crow is a political opportunist. He doesn't want to debate you, which I mean, that's common if you look at incumbents being challenged by, uh, you know, a, a progressive or whatnot. But for someone who doesn't hold that seat, it's it's yes. so embarrassing to not want exactly to right. your primary opponent. It shows okay. that he's scared. And why why would he be scared? He has the DCC, he has the entire Democratic Party on his side. And also, he has a lot more money than you, even though his Republican opponent, or both of your Republican opponents rather, is currently outraising you guys because he's rolling corporate money. I mean, if if you have the upper hand, what's to be afraid of?
5: That's that's an exact right. And and they are doing the kind of ad lies during the prime that you generally wouldn't see until October in a general election, they are running scared. We can win this. Our polling shows that this is wide open, that more than 50% of voters are undecided and that we're both polling in the twenties. So despite the fact that they have outspent us five to one, we are neck and neck and they are just dumping corporate money and Washington insider money on our district, trying to drown out our voice and and they don't even have the guts to debate. I'll also say that one district over in the 1st congressional district you have a very strong progressive candidate named Sarah Rao who is challenging an incumbent congresswoman named Diana DeGette. Well, you know what? DeGette debated Rao. They had a free and spirited contest of ideas and I think it was healthy for democracy. I am so glad that did that, and Crow, who is not an incumbent, who has never held elected office, and whose only advantage is the fact that he is rolling in insider cash, is refusing to debate us, um, which, which considering the fact that we're polling neck and neck and that 50% of the, of the electorate is undecided, that is a huge disservice to democracy. That is robbing our potential constituents of the opportunity to size these candidates up one on one, and it is robbing them of the opportunity to ask tough questions to both myself and to Jason Crow, my opponent. Um, so, so we've actually invited him to a debate on Monday. Um, we have said that if he doesn't show up, what we're going to do is we're going to make a cardboard cutout of Jason Crow. We're calling it the cardboard crow. Uh, we might. Um, we might festoon it with um, significant amounts of, of money. And uh, we are going to, if Crow shows up, have a debate. And if Crow doesn't show up, then I will allow constituents to ask me questions that they think are important, that they think are relevant to this race, and ask the cardboard Crow questions that, that they have for Jason Crow. And, and then maybe we'll answer for him based on what we've seen him say on the record.
2: That is one of the best things I think I've ever heard in my life. Um, another thing you could do is what I saw Zephyr teach out do is you could threaten to debate his donors since really they're the ones who pull all the strings. Maybe they might show up. <laughs> um, Not a bad idea. Not a yeah. Bad idea. yeah. Um, so basically, Levi, what it seems like you're telling me is that for someone who's running in the Democratic Party, it's almost as if they should try to actually pretend at least to care about democracy, right? <laughs>
5: You would think, <laughs> you um. would think. Yeah, look, I, what, what I always say is we are not fighting for the democratic party. We are fighting for principles and for democracy with a small D and my loyalties lie to those principles and lie with democracy, not with big D Democrats who can become corrupted just like Republicans are corrupted. Uh, so, so we need to make sure that we keep our eye on the prize. And, and that's what we're doing here in the sixth. And quite frankly, I think it's working. We need all of your help. We need anyone who's in Denver, anyone who's in Aurora, anyone who is in the district here to come in and volunteer with us and walk with us and make sure that we're getting our message out. And if you can, uh, please contribute as well because because we can win this. And it is it is not an exaggeration to say that This is the most important Democratic primary in the country right Mm -hmm. now. It doesn't have to do with me. It has to do with the fact that my campaign and the people around me stood up to Washington's corruption. And that is what we're continuing to do. And they are infuriated that we have the audacity to speak truth to power and that we intend to win. But we need your help to do that.
2: So when I initially talked about the recording on my show, this is what I said. I said that progressives who are in your position need to threaten the Democratic Party establishment to run as third party. Even if you're if you're bluffing, my my um my argument was that what you should do is say since I'm not getting a fair shot, I'm not going to give the corporate democrat a fair shot in the event um he does end up winning. So let me ask you this since you've kind of you you've seen it firsthand you know how the sausage is made in the event you were to come up with that type of um, threat to them like donald trump did you know against the rnc back in 2016 and 2015 um, do you think that that would scare them would that be a strategy that would work if demo if progressives rather start threatening to run as third-party candidates if they don't get a fair shake in democratic primaries do you think they would even care or do you think that th- just disregard that or do you think that strategy could potentially work if progressives are willing to um play dirty
5: maybe in the future but in colorado we have what they uh refer to refer to um not so euphemistically as sore loser laws and so if for instance we get through the primary and i win the primary and jason crow loses the primary but he decides because he's um you know a very centrist sort of right-wing corporate democrat he wants to run as a centrist, as a third party candidate, mm. he's not actually allowed to do that. Wow. And so unfortunately here in Colorado, uh, that leverage doesn't exist. Mm. You have to decide from the beginning, are you going to run as a third party candidate or are you going to run within the 10th of the democratic party? And I, I, I will say that it is, it is a tough decision for a lot of progressives in Colorado um, to affiliate as Democrats or affiliate as something else uh, when they see this kind of corruption that is endemic within Washington, D.C. and is unfortunately colonizing our politics here in Colorado.
2: That's really interesting. Now that you tell me about the sore loser law, which I wasn't familiar with, I think that if this strategy was, um, you know, implemented nationwide, we'd see probably a lot more sore loser laws. So that was one thing that I kind of thought as you know, progressives main leverage, but that's really interesting. Um so yeah, hey, I hope that you kick Jason Crow's ass. You're running a fantastic campaign. and I think that a lot of people believe in you, and I think that that's showing because you're you're doing really well in spite of the odds. Um, so one more time, tell us what we can do if we want to get involved. uh where can we go if we want to donate to you? If we want to make sure you beat Jason Crow, what do we do?
5: Well, first of all, thank you again for having me on the show. I love watching your show. You are uh, such a thoughtful critic of, of, of our, our country and of our political system and of our media sphere. And I, I really am thrilled to be on the show. And here's what I need from your viewers and your listeners. We need you to come out and knock doors with us. We need you, if you're not in Colorado, to make calls for us. Uh, We need you to go to our website, www.levi4colorado.com, and send an email to my field director, Joe Ehrlich. Um, He's at joe at levi4colorado.com, and tell him you want to help. Um, And if you can, we need you to donate because we are outgunned, and every single dollar you donate is going towards canvassing. It's going towards literature. It's going towards buying water for the people who are coming out and working all day in the hot sun to make sure that we win this, the most important democratic primary in the US right now. And so uh, we we need your help. We really appreciate your activism. Uh, We appreciate uh, your engagement and and, and thanks for for watching Mike's show. And give us a call, check out our Facebook page, like it, check me out on Twitter. And uh, I hope I hear from you soon. I'm around the office, so if you drop by, You'll get to meet me and I look forward to meeting you as well.
2: And before we go, one thing I want to ask is the date of the primary. um, And if there's anything people need to know with regard to um, to registration, do they have to be registered as a Democrat to support you? Um, Is there anything with regard to that that's important?
5: That's a great point. So for the first time, both independents and Democrats are allowed to vote in our Democratic primary. So if you're an independent and you live in Colorado, we need your vote. If you're a Democrat, we definitely need your vote. You had to be registered by, I believe, May 26th in order to vote in the primary. But if you are registered by that date, then you will be receiving a ballot. Um, If you didn't request the Democratic ballot, then you'll get both a Republican and a Democratic ballot. Only send in the Democratic ballot or they'll throw both of them away. And um, our primary voting starts on June 5th or 6th. It's mail-in system. You'll receive your primary ballot in the mail, and it continues all the way up through June 26th, election day. We have an election month and we need your help to make sure that we close that election month out as strong as we possibly can.
2: All right, well, we're all certainly going to be watching. Um, Hey, I hope you, you pull it off. It looks like you're doing great. So thank you so much, Levi. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far and listened to me ramble for now almost two hours, I don't know how long we've been going, uh, you truly are a huge fan of the Humanist Report, I guess I should say, or just care about the issues. I don't know, but I don't know how you can listen to me ramble that long, but if you did... Thank you so much. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support us, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Report or check out humanistsupport.com slash support. And as usual, I can't end the show without thanking all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show to survive in an era of YouTube censorship. So thank you all so much. I'll see you next week. Take care.